0: You're likely to get nefarious understandings of nationalism if you don't have these well-developed local communities. Because here, what you do is you develop a love of your country based on the fact that you have a share in its government. If you don't have these intermediary communities, and then you start thinking about a nation, you're going to have this imagined, enchanted idea of the nation. So my argument is the configuration of globalism and identity politics is effectively over. It's still being played out, but it's a historical moment. It doesn't like seem over in the
1: universities. <laughs> no, not universities.
0: Mean? Well, we'll talk, talk about that in a minute, because I think Trump will eventually go after the universities on his second term.
1: Hi, you're listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. I'm your host, Duncan Mensch. In this podcast, I interview scholars, writers, and intellectuals about the American political tradition and the state of intellectual life in the United States. The point of the podcast is to have an intellectual exchange of views on political, civic, and social issues in American life. Many of the guests on the podcast are part of the school's speaker series, which invites liberal progressives and conservative voices that we feel are important for the advancement of civil and liberal education today. All right. On today's podcast, I'll be speaking with Joshua Mitchell, professor of political theory at Georgetown University. He's the author of The Fragility of Freedom, Tocqueville on Religion, Democracy, and the American Future. In general, his scholarship focuses on the relationship of political thought and theology in the West. We were lucky enough to host Professor Mitchell as a visiting scholar at Skeddle last fall. Skeddle is our school's acronym, in case you didn't know. In the interview you're going to hear today, Professor Mitchell and I discussed the unknowing and often unseen relationship of contemporary American political culture to Christian theology and religious thinking. Might our country be headed in a new, but not necessarily positive, religious direction? Joshua Mitchell i want to just move into what I think might be the most interesting aspect of the uniqueness of your perspective. And that is, I'm guessing, without knowing for sure, that you saw Trump's victory coming long before many other people. And given that this flew so many people for a loop, how did you see this coming?
0: Well, for one, I don't live in Washington. I live 100 miles away out in what is now called Trump country. And I have been witnessing growing frustration over the years from the people who live around me with what's happening in Washington. We know for a fact that middle-class incomes have been frozen since 1974. The biggest place around where we shop is Walmart, where you see people desperately clinging to the lower end of the middle class. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, you see blacks and whites living with the kind of peace and balance that I actually don't see in Washington, D.C., which is very ironic because the deplorables are often considered to be racist. What really clued me... The
1: quote-unquote deplorables. The, I'm assuming you t- use that term with oh yes. irony. Oh,
0: yes. I did. Yeah. I think what finally confirmed to me that Trump was going to win was that I saw Trump signs in people's windows, but these were not Trump signs prepared by the Republican Party. Homemade, handwritten signs Trump in people's windows. It made me realize that there was a vast swath of American citizens who had really become fed up with the Republican Party. We already saw this in the primaries, the Republican primaries. And we're going to push a button that said, I'm done with either elites, Democratic or Republican, telling us what we're supposed to do, telling us that we're going to be the sacrificial lambs for a liberal world order. I guess one of the pieces I would add would be... Uh, Do you
1: think they think of it in those terms, though? Is that their own self-conception of the problem? Or are you projecting a little bit onto uh, it?
0: I will say, without naming stores, so there's a barbershop I go to okay, where cops and firemen and dock workers... And it's literally
1: a barbershop. It's a it's barbershop. Exactly okay. I mean,
0: this is where I... This isn't a
1: metaphorical barbershop. No, this
0: is a barbershop run by a husband and a wife. And I got more sophisticated analysis about what was wrong with America in that barbershop than I heard on any of the news networks. People out there, they can see what's going on. And they saw Trump was going to win a long time before it happened. There's one other thing I would say. I was actually in Qatar, Doha, Qatar, in Georgetown School of Foreign Service when the election occurred. And I had a big debate with one of my colleagues there, who's a up-and-up political scientist who does the numbers, mm-hmm. and swore that the polls made it impossible for Trump to win. But I knew that there was so much public humiliation of people who voted for Trump that it was simply not going to be the case that when pollsters called up your average citizen, that they were going to be honest. And so I had in the back of my mind what I called the six point rule, which was a 6% rule, which is that Trump support is going to be underreported by 6%. And How did you going, give up with six? I just pick a number. I just said, it's not what people think. I think there's a distortion here. Hmm. And going into the election night, I think he was down by four percent, and so I just was not surprised hmm. that he won. And all of my colleagues at Georgetown were incredulous that this had happened. I think Washington, all
1: of them. There wasn't a single one that was on. It was the There was only
0: game. one, and he was what I would call a Scoop Jackson Democrat. Which is to say, an old-line Democrat prior to both the Marxist turn and the identity politics turn, who understood that the middle class mattered. And I actually came out of that Democratic Party in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. You have to remember that it's either 93 or 97% in Washington voted for Trump, or for, sorry, for Hillary.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Nobody admitted that they voted in Washington for Trump, but it was 93 to 97% for Hillary. So it was simply inconceivable. It was cosmologically as if the laws of Newtonian mechanics or Einstein's e equals MC squared had been violated. That's what it felt I mean, like I, in Washington.
1: I, I've, said, I've said this to people before, and usually they don't believe me. But the three years I spent living in New York were the most conformitarian, least intellectual years of my life. It's very, very difficult to get into a, a genuine intellectual debate with somebody in New York because everybody tends to think almost exactly alike. I would imagine Washington, D.C. is, if not similar, quite... You can't walk
0: into a room where everybody's democratic and even have a reasonable conversation because if you disagree, there's no possible way that your ideas can be entertained. And this is actually the reason I left the Democratic Party. My view is that every party should have reasonable differences of opinion... But the Democratic Party has become so ensconced on on various positions. You know, abortion. I actually do think abortion probably should be legal, but it's also a morally horrible thing. But you can't have that position in the Democratic Party.
1: You used to be able to 40 years ago, 45 years ago. But
0: not anymore. I will say the Republicans who were part of the think tanks that were backing the other 16, so to speak, the non-Trump Republicans, they're still remarkably brittle, too. I mean, one of the things that worries me a little bit is that what the Trump election represents, in my view, is an opportunity for complete reconfiguration of American political oppositions and parties. And what has troubled me is that the Democrats are continuing to double down on identity politics, notwithstanding whatever Bernie Sanders and that wing of the Democratic Party wants. And that's largely because the donor class are from Palo Alto, Hollywood, and New York, and they're not mm-hmm. going to give up on identity politics because identity politics is the fig leaf, making reference to Adam, that covers their pride, their class standing. So they can't give that up because if we start looking at class, we will quickly discover that the Democrat elites are among the wealthiest in the world. So they're not going to give up on identity politics. The Republicans. Strange enough, I think they're still putting their finger to the wind. Think tanks and congressmen and senators putting their fingers to the wind and wondering whether this Trump thing is durable or an anomaly. My intuition is that it's not an anomaly. That as the Rockefeller Republicans said when Reagan got elected, "Well, we'll take this back after he's gone." So too, I think the old line Republicans are going to be in the exact same position,
1: even though they've ended up with quite a bit of power. In a way, at least there's the policies that have been enacted in the first two years. Yeah, I just... You I, still think in the long run, this is a sea change, that you're never going to be able to put this genie back in the bottle.
0: Well, so my larger argument about Trump, and this gets to your initial question, how could I see this happening? The one half my answer is in a way empirical. I just saw stuff occurring, but I'm a Tocqueville scholar. And if you read Tocqueville carefully, and I have since 1990, you know that Tocqueville does think that life in the democratic age becomes binodal, so to speak, And Binodal meaning we dwell in two different places at once. And one one of the places we dwell in is at the level of universal ideas and globalism and all that. And the other other is very narrow, self-enclosed self, if you want to use that kind of language. And so my terminology for this phenomena that's really doubled down since 1989 is globalization, two ways of putting it, globalization and identity politics or management society, and selfie man.
1: You also used the term cosmopolitanism. I mean, I, th- I th- thought cosmopol- I heard you yeah. use the term globalist cosmopolitanism or something. Am I getting you wrong? Th-
0: those are synonymous in my view, but I think what's really important that people haven't seen is that while they do see that identity politics is happening and they do see that globalism is happening, nobody has put together both of these and said these are co-relational. And if you've read your Tocqueville, you know that they're co-relational because what happens in the democratic age is to use Tocqueville's phrase, we come to think of ourselves as greater than kings and less than men. Meaning, in our selfie lives, we were the most important thing in the world, which is why everybody's taking selfies around the planet. And yet when it comes to the really important challenges of the world, we hand it off to management society. So if Trump didn't sign the Paris Accords, the planet is doomed. One can only think of that through a Tocquevillian lens. That is to say, here are all these selfie cells taking pictures and posting on Facebook, Mm -hmm. which is to say they're so important. And yet, with respect to doing anything, we have to hand it to the global managers. Well, this was exactly the configuration. Let's tease that so, a little
1: more because I think it's a pretty complex idea. On the one hand, this minimal self, I'm gonna use that term from Christopher Lash, who I'm not sure you're a fan of, seems like somebody you might be, mm-hmm. at least somewhat interested in this idea of the minimal self. And that's part of what creates the need to constantly portray yourself in social media as having a great time, doing wonderful things constantly taking selfies, as we just said, and also this infatuation maybe with one's victimhood, one's victim status, or just their identity status in relation to other people. All of those things are kind of turning towards the self. But this dichotomy with also seeing all politics in this entirely global manner needing to be solved only in this totalizing global manner because you can't necessarily accept the personal responsibility of being involved on the local level? Am I describing what you're getting at? Yeah,
0: and I think Tocqueville sees this in 1840, which is to say in the second edition. And one of the things I think is important to note is that this binodal living in these two places share in common one thing, is, namely that there's no risk. So when you're posting your selfie self, Picture, there is no need to respond to other people. There's, there's no risk. You just defriend if somebody opposes you. And then, with respect to globalism, there's no risk there either because we're just going to hand it off to global managers. What Tocqueville saw was this binodal arrangement would develop precisely because as democracy aged, if you want to use that kind of language, or as we move farther and farther in the democratic age, people would sense themselves to be smaller and smaller and smaller. And would be less inclined and less able to build out in that mediational space of face-to-face relations. So when I say binodal, you have to visualize this. So you've got no risk. So he saw
1: even this technological disconnect coming, even though. I think
0: Facebook emerges and simply confirms a phenomena that Tocqueville saw happening. It exacerbates it, but it's not the cause of it. So you really need to visualize this at two binodal arrangement with an intermediary layer, right? So the binodal arrangement— And technology is the
1: intermediary? No, the
0: intermediary Uh. layer is the face-to-face relation. So you're either—you're looking up to global, cosmopolitan, universal ideas, which are anonymous. You're pulling into a selfie self that has no need for other people. Both of these are no-risk gambits, And the risk is if we build a world in the mediating institutions of face-to-face life. So people say, yes, I understand Tocqueville was concerned about civic associations and he's the theorist of civic associations. That's all true. But if you don't place it within the context of his larger apprehension about this binodal development, Mm -hmm. you don't get the import of it. His point was the natural disposition, as we've become cut off and delinked, is to produce exactly the binodalism of globalism and identity politics, management, society, mm-hmm. and self-demand. That's a logical development within the democratic age itself. And so he asked the question, so how can we avert it? And his answer was really very simple, simple and difficult. We have to fill out the mediational space of all these institutions, face-to-face relations, family, civic life, federalism. Um, All so those that,
1: things that are fraying, you know, as, yes. as someone like Robert Putnam, yes, has exactly. you know,
0: right. So started at,
1: detailing quite a while, right.
0: And Tocqueville is the first one to deal it. He sees this already in Democracy in America. So as these things fray, in fact, the binodal alternatives emerge. That would be the other way of putting this. If we have a rich civic life and a rich embedded life, then we've got an antidote to this binodalism. As that disappears, then it gets produced. So it's not an accident, in my view, that Putnam starts writing about this in the 1990s, this great concern about the fraying of civic institutions, precisely at the moment that we embark on what I call the great experiment from 1989 to 2016, which is this binodal life. And you've had a whole generation raised on this.
1: So this is just the natural evolution of the binodal life.
0: It's the further development of it, yes, is what I put it. So Tocqueville saw the problem a long time ago, and it emerges with a vengeance after 1989, I think, in part because... We dream that states are no longer necessary because war has now become obsolete. And so this is Fukuyama's essay. In okay. a way. So we're in this strange place that actually Tocqueville predicted so long ago. And so to circle around to your first question, that's one of the reasons why I saw...
1: You saw those developments...
0: I saw them in the 1990s. ...climaxing. Yes. Or, or
1: at least coming... The, the wave was cresting, perhaps.
0: Yeah. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why I object to the term populism, because populism is a binary setup implying a distinction between the universal cosmopolitan true human consciousness versus a parochial distorted one. And my argument is we shouldn't think of this in terms of binaries, because then if you're enlightened, you're going to hate anyone who believes in the nation, anyone who believes in their particular kind of family, and who has a particular commitment to religion, And this is always the universalist temptation. And so populism is a term of derogation, really, invoked largely from a universal frame of mind. And I think this is a very bad way to see this. I think, in fact, if we look at it not in terms of a binary, but in terms of the binodal development and its antidote, namely embodied life in municipal institutions, we have a better handle on what's happening. So the longing for the nation, in this sense, I mean, I'm sure there are some people who have very nefarious intentions for this, but I see it as a, to use my language, it's, it's a consequence of the existential homelessness that you get with globalism on the one hand, which is too big of a home, and selfie man, which is too small of a home. And so we need to have a life on human scale, which extends, in my view, in Tocqueville's view, from the local to the national. And while we can hope for more, in point of fact, we're, we're in these embodied communities. So in other words, the problem is not populism. Populism emerges, if you're thinking in terms of binaries. The problem is the lack of mediation between these two binodal points and so I say the problem is actually existential homelessness. It's a better way of looking at it. And that allows us to understand the longing. Existential
1: homelessness for our polity, for the for, everyday person.
0: For living in face-to-face relations with real time. And my argument is, it's not just my argument, the nation is the largest such unit that's possible for mm-hmm. an embedded community. Beyond that, it's imagining and hope. And there's nothing
1: wrong with imagining and hope. But it's not hope. just the national community that's under deterioration but still, it's yeah. the local communities all the way down the line it's all these civic yes. institutions yes or what somebody like burke would have called the little platoon yes
0: and let me add to this so it's not my argument; it's argument's argument. you're likely to get nefarious understandings of nationalism if you don't have these well-developed local communities because here what you do is you develop a love of your country based mm-hmm. on the fact that you have a share in its government if you don't have these intermediary communities and then you start thinking about a nation, you're going to have this imagined, enchanted idea of the nation. So my argument is the configuration of globalism and identity politics is effectively over. It's still being played out, but it's a historical moment. I'm Certainly like does it doesn't seem over in
1: the universities. No, not you the universities.
0: I mean? Well, we'll talk, we I mean, talk about that in a minute but, because I think Trump will eventually go after the universities on his second term. But my argument is the historical – Which you're just
1: assuming or
0: – Oh, we'll get to that. I, okay, I'm, okay. I'm almost certain he's going to win. So this historical moment is over of this binodal. We're going to have to go back to embodied communities. And then the great question for me is, what are they going to look like? And the feeling worry is that if you don't have these embedded communities, which are concrete and clip the wings of the imagination, so to speak... Hmm. The kind of nation you're going to have is a kind of enchanted nationalism.
1: What do you mean by that? Because, I mean, obviously, that's very descriptive In imagery. Clip the wings of the imagination. Clip the wings of so Tophil, which part of our imagination.
0: Tocqueville is very worried about the imagination. And what he says is, when we become lonely and isolated and alone, our imagination about who the other, let's use this postmodern language is, who the other is going to become inflamed and we're going to have very character versions and probably demonic versions. And so he says... Did you
1: say demonic or demonic? Demonic. Demonic.
0: And under those circumstances, that's not exactly his word, but he sees the problem in this way. So he says in one place, as soon as matters are treated in common we come to see that our neighbor's not as different as we had thought. Now, how can we treat them in common? We can only treat them common if we have a forum, an actual place, where we have to work with the other over issues of modest concern. This is where Tofu is a liberal, right? Let's lower sure. our sights. So his view is if we don't have that, then our imagination is going to wander. And because we're lonely and isolated and we're now in the age of nations again, right, we've moved beyond this globalism and identity politics, what you're going to likely get, and this is one of my concerns about Europe, and we're seeing this, of course, Mm -hmm. is an enchanted view of nations. So my argument is the, the configuration of globalism and identity politics is effectively over. It will get played out. I'll use Fukuyama's language they're still in history, even if the idea of history, you know, right. has moved on. These people are still in mm-hmm. history. But the challenge for me now is, since that's no longer an option, we have to discover what healthy, embedded, embodied communities are. And the Tocquevillean argument is, if you don't have this, this sharing in government, mm-hmm. so to speak, then you're going to get these enchanted ideas of nationhood. This is in this section on patriotism mm-hmm. in Volume 1, Part 2. And it's a remarkable set of insights. sees this?
1: it seems to me that liberal globalism reached a peak somewhere in the 2000s, right? Probably the pendulum is swinging back towards some localist, anti-globalist, nationalist movement. And you're seeing this all over the world. It isn't just Trump, obviously. It's happening throughout most of the Western world and probably seems reasonable to say that the parts that it hasn't reached probably will. So, if this plays itself out, how far will it go? Is it possible that we're really moving towards an age where very local forms of governance and maybe even a post federal world is not only reasonable, but maybe even desirable?
0: Well, this is, as I take it, one of the directions that say Yaram Hazoni is moving in the virtue of nationalism. I mean, if you press Yaram, who's a dear friend, and I have immense respect for him, I think he will point in the direction of communities returning to more natural delineations, not based on something artificial like the liberal nation. So I think that's a distinct possibility. I, for one, think this is a bad idea. I'm enough of a Westphalian, if you let alone a Hobbesian, Westphalian to believe that the nation state actually is the largest unit, that the capital L liberal position is what I call just enough liberalism. Of course, we've got all the predicates that attach Mm -hmm. to us, whether it's man, woman, Christian, Jew, whatever whatever it happens to be. Of course we have those. But the hope of what I call just enough liberalism is we can rise above that just enough to... Just enough. Just enough. Just enough liberalism so that we can rise above it, so we can have arguments and reach provisional political solutions and then re-adjudicate them, so to speak in another two, four, and six years. Liberalism isn't this Kantian autonomy, in my view. And this is the Rawlsian, right? We have no history.
1: Why do you attribute that to Kant rather than the Anglo-Americans?
0: I think Kant's the first one. And it shows up in Rawls with a theory of justice. Citizens that have no history. The original condition. We have no history. And Rawls would say, I'm trying to fill out what... Kant was doing. And and Kant's distinction between autonomy and heteronomy is the grounds for doing that. The heteronomous things are all our inheritance. And so Rawls is simply working out in a theory of justice, this idea of the disembodied soul, which leads to universalism and the pride that those who followed in Rawls's wake have the assurance that they've got the universal thing. And the alternative is all the heteronomies of parochialism. Well, this is the game we're playing out Mm -hmm. right now. But I want to be careful here. I want to back up to something you said. You got global universalism and then nationalism that pushes against it. I don't want to set up it as an antinomy. My argument is that a truly liberal world order is not what we had. A liberal world order is a plural world of nations. And so I think this so-called liberal world order is not liberal at all. The metaphysics... It's phony liberalism or... It's a a universalism. Universalism is not liberalism. We've got to get past this prejudice, I think. And Tocqueville calls himself a liberal of a new kind. And what's the thing he's most worried about? is the disappearance of variety from the human race, I Mm -hmm. quote. So Tocqueville sees liberal as plural... And my argument is that we haven't tried plural. We've tried something else, which is universalism. And people But when are, you say
1: pluralism, you don't mean a brand of multiculturalism. Not. Or do you? Or is it multicultural in some ways and not in others?
0: No, it's a world of nations, which is to say some nations are going to wager this and other nations are going to wager that. So I've been in the Middle East for a good part of the last 12 years. And my students wager. Will. It's a bad yeah. about the future. Okay my larger point is that liberal is not a system. So when we talk about a liberal order, we're talking about a system. We talk about the global economy as a system. Well, metaphysics of liberal is very different. It's, it's not anything goes, but it's we're living in a providential world whose unfoldings we can't know in advance. So a market, properly understood, is liberal. In that, a market is a constellation of competing wagers about possible alternative futures. That's a market. It's emergent. <laughs> And my argument is that a liberal world of nations are emergent nations. So I was in the Middle East for 12 years, and my students in Qatar will routinely say to me, Professor Mitchell, why do your silly American students come over here and lecture us about democracy being the universal political form? We know that constitutional monarchy is the highest political form. And my (laughs) view is, and they're quite serious about this, and my view is, let a thousand flowers bloom. If in certain regions of the globe they want to do constitutional monarchy, yalla go, as we say in Arabic, you know, go ahead, go try for it. And see how it goes. I don't think. Well,
1: this strikes me as a very Burkean, yes. classical conservative take exactly. on the multicultural experience.
0: But let's be clear. My view is if some nations want to be multicultural, that's fine. If others don't, that's fine too. I just don't think we can decide in advance what the right one is. Now, I certainly have my. Whereas the prejudices. liberal
1: globalists, you would argue, do. Do, right. Yes. So I
0: have my prejudices and I will defend this regime that we have to the death. Make no mistake about that.
1: Best regime in terms of the United States. The United States. Our our liberal tradition.
0: Well, the United States constitutional order and the laws that we have and the borders that we have. Mm -hmm. This is what a liberal would say. But a liberal will also say if in Qatar they want to do constitutional monarchy and not build churches, that's their business. So what strikes me as really strange, and I don't think I got this until my students in the Middle East would tell me this, they would say, Professor Mitchell, why is it that you people are so ashamed of your country? Why is it you feel like you have to tear down your borders and let everyone in? We don't do that. We believe in our country.
1: Well, I mean, practically no nations, too. This is one of the things that's hard to explain to students is that most countries have pretty strict immigration. Even Canada, which probably has the most similar ...immigrating experience that we do. I mean, you can't just go and immigrate to Canada. It's quite a bit of paperwork... ...and quite a bit of time... ...and not necessarily easier... ...if easier at all than here. And in most places are at least as difficult as the United States yeah. in terms of their immigrating experience, if not far more difficult, especially wealthy nations.
0: Yeah, and I think this is as it should be, because if the Qataris want to do one thing and the Saudis want to do another and we want to do another, that's just fine. I don't want to say multiculturalism. I want to say a world of plural nations, each with different wagers about what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And they decide on this based on history and argumentation, or maybe somebody, a few people decide and not many... I don't think that's our business to say this is exactly the way we need to go, that the world needs to go. So I think that the so-called liberal world order is not a liberal world order. It's been a universalist world order.
1: It's a facade of liberalism. Yes,
0: and the real liberal is plural, and I think we need to have a plurality of nations. And that means people in different nations are going to do different things. That's what I think we need to move toward. And that's a truly liberal order. So I'm, in effect, trying to resurrect, to recapture the term liberal.
1: But you're using this in an interesting way because you mean liberal in the sense that there's going to be non-liberal forms. There's going to be quite a bit of forms of governance and forms of maybe even cultural spheres that exist in their own way that are not free trade oriented and certainly not westernizing, perhaps culturally Uh, Christianizing is maybe not necessarily the term we're looking for, but progressing towards a Western model, as this certainly is the way most people thought, if not quite explicitly in the 1990s, probably into much of the 2000s, you're saying, no, 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 that is over, that is done. We need to accept that it's over and done. There is a new age coming. We need to embrace a different brand of liberalism that's maybe not so, and I don't know if you like this term hegemonic, but... You're
0: pressing me in the right direction, right? So it seems like this so-called liberal world that I'm proposing turns out not to be liberal. After all, I'm using liberal in a more metaphysical sense. That is to say, a recognition that we can't decide in advance... What the truth of the matter is. And therefore, the truth has to emerge in various and distinct loci. Okay? Mm -hmm. And that means different nations are differing loci for the emergence of different possible, I don't know, I'll sound like Haberman's life forms or whatever. Mm -hmm. I want to recognize that liberal means plural. And plural doesn't mean that everything can fit in the same. It means that not that I'm a fan of postmodern language, but let's use it, that the other can remain other. And my worry about the so-called liberal order is that the only way you can fit in is if you tie into this larger view. This is my same apprehension, by the way, about identity politics. It's a hegemonic language. It purports to be plural. But it's profoundly hegemonic. I had a woman student in the Middle East come to me, fully covered. Mm-hmm. And she said, Professor Mitchell, why are all your left-wing professors here at Georgetown and Qatar telling me I have an identity? That was the only way you can,
1: you can be can be. literally the language? That was verbatim? That is
0: exactly what she said. Why are they mm-hmm. telling me I have an identity? This is very curious. What did she mean by this? So she would say, well, I'm a Muslim. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you have a Muslim identity? No, I'm a Muslim. No, you have Muslim identity. So in other words, you've got to have some sort of universalist hegemonic term that domesticates everything and gives the appearance of plurality. But in fact, it's not plurality. I mean, strangely enough, Marx said the same thing about money, right? If you've got this plural world of products, but you can buy them all, How much pluralism is there? Tocqueville wrestles with this, too. Plato wrestles with this, too. They all recognize this paradox of apparent diversity, but no real diversity. And so I'm saying the language of identity, just like the liberal language of pluralism, the so-called pluralism, imposes, and it doesn't let things emerge as contrary to and not subsumable within a system. Let me
1: tease this out for a second. So just going along with this idea, the idea that postmodern identity politics is not genuinely diverse in its conceptions because it attributes to everyone an identity. And at least on the surface of the way that it talks about its values, everyone's identities are equally valuable. Now in application, I think you would agree that that's probably not generally how it seems to be genuinely valued, genuinely expressed. That seems like some identities in most of the identity politics culture are valued more highly than others, but at least on the surface, there's this concept that all identities are equal. Therefore, this is not genuinely diverse because what you're saying is someone in an Islamic country doesn't have a Muslim identity. They just have... They're a Muslim. They're just a Muslim... Qatari. is that the right? They're Qatari. Qatari. So it's so true. to them, this is actually minimalizing. It's, it's, it's limiting it's their experience.
0: Yes, it's rendering it as something, as X. So there was a variant of this debate that happened in the 1990s after Rawls. We're back to Rawls. Rawls are... So she would say, well, I'm a Muslim. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you have a Muslim identity. No, I'm a Muslim. No, you have a Muslim identity. So in other words, you've got to have some sort of universalist hegemonic term that domesticates everything and gives the appearance of plurality. But in fact, it's not plurality. I mean, strangely enough, Marx said the same thing about money, right? If you've got this plural world of products, but you can buy them all, how much pluralism is there? of this, who then started talking in the early 1990s, in the following way, that she would say, well, "Okay, well, since public discourse requires that we use the same terms, mm-hmm. we're going to translate a Christian terms and we're going to into the language that's acceptable politically. So we have mm-hmm. preferences, and here's the other one, which everyone uses now: I have religious values because values is a term that's acceptable mm-hmm. in the public discourse. And now everyone talks about having a religious identity. Well, when I was growing up, you were, you know, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, but your identity wasn't. So everybody's desperately searching for this way to count." And identity is the term that you have to use to count. So you're a nothing until you have an identity. And my argument with Gene back then, and so my argument now back then was, no, this Rawlsian demand for a a hegemonic set of preconditions that you have to adopt to be part of anything is absolutely wrong. It ought to be quite the opposite. Speak as a Jew, as a Catholic, as a Protestant fully, with full resonance. And then if people find something compelling in it, great, go for it. And then we can agree. But this whole idea that we have to shut down discourse and there's a, there's a precondition for you being able to join in is deeply, deeply destructive.
1: So And there's the anti-liberal element, if I'm understanding you correct, in the sense that if you set up, we have these predefined identities. And so, especially for intellectuals and thinkers which tend towards the iconoclastic mold, not always, but, you know, there's certainly much more overlap there. Many people aren't going to fit into these predefined identities, these predefined groups, these right. predefined experiences. Right. So you are confining their voice... Right. Confining their expression and also maybe even pre-determining what are the range of acceptable voices.
0: Yes. Right. And now I come back to the people I live with on the Eastern Shore who just got really fed up with being told that they're this and this is the only way that they count. So my argument to the left is for 20 years, I would say, well, I'm a liberal citizen. They'd say, no, 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 you have an, a white identity. And so you can't count as a person who has this liberal view, whatever your so called identity is. I kept saying, no, 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 I don't want to use that language. Why do I have to use your language? Mm. And they said, no, 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 you have an identity. And so finally, are we really surprised when white people who want to say, look, let's forget this identity thing. We're all citizens of this country are told for years. No, no, no. That's inappropriate. That's deception, self-deception. You have an identity. And then suddenly the left is surprised when white people, in order to step into the public debate, realize the only language they can use is the language of identity. So they say, I have a white identity. It's incredibly dangerous. There's an old saying in carpentry, when every tool is a hammer, then everything is a nail. Sure. Mm, so this so-called pluralism that identity politics purportedly sees isn't pluralistic at all. I mean, I call it white progressive racism. And the reason why I do this, I've done some print. White
1: progressive racism.
0: Because what racism does is it sets the preconditions for which a different group can enter into the linguistic conversation. So this to and me. so
1: by that definition of racism. This version of identity politics qualifies as its own racism. But you're using racism in quotes I'm assuming. No. And I, there's a, there's I, a bit of irony to it. Well
0: but I'm saying even with respect to blacks in America today. African Americans today. Okay. I think the ones that confide in me say, what is this identity thing? You know, I'm an African-American, and they want to say, well, you're part of this larger thing because you have an identity. And so African-Americans move back and forth between the vernacular of their own community, which does not include this language, and then to be counted in the white progressive, because it's really the white progressives that are doing this, they have to translate languages. And this, of course, has been an issue for the African-American community for a long time.
1: We have to describe things in terms of identities we can we're actually not being liberal and so going along with this it strikes me that oftentimes i've heard students themselves say things like this to me obviously there are all these affirmative action programs on campuses and in faculty hiring and everything else and this is a huge emphasis of the university probably now more than it's ever been but that doesn't genuinely result in diverse voices and students themselves can recognize this i remember i had a student a minority student and i won't describe all the details because i don't want to call anybody out Necessarily so because they said these donors who often fund these scholarships and these programs, they speak so much about wanting to help minorities, but do they really want to help minorities who have views or ways of living that differ? Right. Seems like they all want them to fit into a specific package. Right. And I see little reason to challenge the student's notion. We if we will going back to the Trump election, one of the things many people were shocked by was how many minorities voted for Trump. Right. If you define and you say minorities think this way, whatever the minority is, or whatever hyphenated right. identity or or religious identity or whatever else, that you are able to package it and say that it thinks this way, it has these experiences, which of course is always going to be truncating right. to all the people who don't fit into that, right, you're eliminating that from the discourse and therefore being non liberal.
0: Right. So this is the problem of our day, which is we're trying to render everything in terms of a system, whether it's identity or globalism. And we're not allowing things that don't fit within that rubric to emerge. And so it is fascinating to me that over the last 10 or 15 years now, everybody throws around the word identity. I am old enough to remember when the word was not
1: used. When do you think it started to become a greater use? Late 80s, mid 80s, late 80s. It's certainly, Right after, around the time Alan Bloom was writing. Yeah, although Bloom... Or actually probably he was writing before that. But Bloom
0: didn't see it in the closing of the American mind. I don't think the mm-hmm. word shows up. It doesn't show up as a philosophical concept. I think it actually comes after the fall of the Berlin Wall and effectively the repudiation mm-hmm. of Marxism on the left and the turn for another, turn to a different kind of language, the postmodern language.
1: But postmodernism like, as an intellectual movement starts way well back. beyond that. Are you saying yeah. that, that in terms of its...
0: Penetration into the 90s. I think it's the 90s. Okay. I mean, I think because then what happened was, and I remember this at Chicago. There were lots of a number of Marxist scholars who would say, "Well, yes, Marxist economics has been repudiated, but we still have to hang on to the moral vision." But the power of the Marxist analysis kind of crumbled after 1989, and then what it replaced it was a. I think it's a pseudo Nietzscheanism, but nevertheless, it's a, a recurrence to the claim that Nietzsche made, namely that there is no absolute standard, that the language that we have to use as values. And I think this just becomes what the Democratic Party wants to do. But ironically, as you know, Nietzsche wanted to invoke the term values so that there could be no stable resting place on the basis of which we could say this is all equal, this is all the same, there's a universal language. His purpose of invoking the term values was to show that everything is the will to power and equality is a distortion of the essential features of the will to power, which is always
1: hierarchy. It seems like Carl Schmitt makes a similar point to this in part of his critique of liberalism, basically saying liberalism is as oppressive as anything else. But this is where I think your thinking becomes very fascinating. On one hand, you want to embrace a great deal of the benefits and incredible accomplishments of liberalism, but at the same time recognize all of its detriments and all of the many disadvantages that it's brought and move us towards a new, and if I'm getting you wrong, you should stop me, Burkean, I want to say the word transnational age, is a decent description, but also it's going to be more national. It's going to be more local. But doesn't that by its very nature mean, going back to my earlier question, that maybe we really are moving towards something that is going to be almost non-federal? And I do mean not just the U.S., maybe something broader where we're going to see far more new national movements. I think that's going to happen. And 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 how do you feel about
0: it? Well, I'm worried about it. So we're back to Yoram. So I ask Yoram, is it one of the implications— of this conservative nationalism, that the nation states that were cobbled together through the colonialist age in Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Asia are completely artificial, and that they can't be held together through federalism. But in fact, these nations have to decompose into their separate national units. And I think his view is, yeah, that's probably right. And I'm sure he's as horrified as I am by the prospect of the bloodshed. But I think his view is that that's a more natural thing. My view is, the tragedy of the 21st century may be that that's what happens, but that the liberal position, I keep coming back, this the just enough liberal position, is that if we don't have some ground to rise just enough above the predicates so that we can build a world together as citizens, not this identity or that identity, but as citizens who make these provisional determinations and then move to the next step. If we can't do that, then that's where we're going to go. So I'm not prepared to give up on liberalism. And in part because I don't think there's a very good alternative
1: to liberal. But isn't it maybe up to us to construct such an alternative? Doesn't it seem almost inevitable from your own logic that liberalism's days are waning, and that we need to come up with something... That is just what I described, taking the best of liberalism, discarding the worst of it. Or am I taking your ideas way out of, way too far than you would take them? I always have
0: to come back to Tocqueville. So what Tocqueville saw as a characteristic of the democratic age is that all the links that would hold us to one another, to previous generations, and to nature would be broken. And so on the one hand, we would come to see ourselves as disembodied persons, Kantian autonomous souls. Rawls is in some sense right. And that is the justification for what I'm calling this just enough liberalism. We sense something that has genuinely happened uh, with the Middle East to find this out for 12 years. I mean, yes, my Middle Eastern students feel like they're part of a family, all these rich ties that Americans can't even conceive. And yet, when you ask them, they'll say, but I also see myself as a person. If you really understand that, it's revolutionary because notwithstanding all the predicates that tie them to their, let's use the word, the identity word, Mm -hmm. they also see themselves as utterly disembodied persons who hover over the world. That, to me, is the liberal insight, is that there's a little bit of both here. We both see ourselves as tied to our predicates and yet as persons. And the liberal regime hinges on the possibility of us conceiving of ourselves Hmm. as these delinked persons. It hinges on that. Now, what Tocqueville saw that's so important was that this is incredibly fragile and we're hovering over the world. What Tocqueville saw was that one way of responding to that disembodied condition is to invent new ways in which one can be grounded. And I think I'll put words in his head. I think we invent invent, new ways. So in the aristocratic Mm. age, we were supposedly fixed in accordance Mm. with nature to a certain social strata, right? Mm -hmm. So the doctrine of nature gets chucked and everything is contingent and historical. But what Tocqueville says is we're going to reinvent distinctions in our own head Mm. that allow us to step back from this liberal disembodied condition. He says a host of new and artificial classifications will be invented. One way of seeing that is that's what identity politics is. It's precisely at the moment that we see ourselves as utterly disembodied individuals. In other words, Rawls is right. Precisely at that moment. Which explains the tribalism of it. Yes. But
1: how do you take that exact idea, though, and create healthy new forms of grounding? Because I think we would probably both agree that what's very problematic about the current identity conceptions as they exist, is that they're not grounding, that they don't provide the type of genuinely nurturing and limiting, and I mean that in a positive way, aspects of the social experience, of the moral experience, of the existential experience, of all those things, that it doesn't provide any of the real positive elements. It may provide elements of those things, but most of it ends up being at minimum dangerous, if not destructive. And how, though, do you get beyond a disconnected, disembodied selfie man towards a new, I don't know what man we want to... Well,
0: let's use the vernacular of the day. So selfie man is political activist who is episodically out there doing something in the name of righteousness and truth, comes back on Facebook and posts it. The alternative to that, which is what you're asking, is Mm. the citizen. Because citizenship is not episodic. Citizenship is, here's my neighbor. That neighbor's going to be with me for a long time. I'm going to be around for a long time. I'm going to have to work with this person. Again, we're back to Tocqueville's mediation claim, that we have to be pulled out of our selfie selves, and political activism is the political form of the selfie man, which is why this whole generation is full of political activists. Interestingly enough, I'm going to predict right now that it's not a huge surprise, but I'll give you the reason for it. So millennials have the kind of moral certainty that they have the absolute truth at their disposal, but they don't vote because they're political activists. Is that true? Statistically? There is a huge worry right now. I
1: thought there was an uptick with Obama.
0: There was with Obama, again? but I've seen numerous interviews about this very election where young people have these credible moral clarity about the rightness of the position on the left. And then the interview at the very end says, well, so you're going to vote, right? No, I'm not going to vote.
1: I'm utterly powerless. So you've got this, <laughs>
0: This again, management society and selfie man. So, Isn't
1: there something else there? Laziness? But there's something else in terms of... The conception that voting isn't what makes a difference, it's statement politics, it's your position. If your views are what makes you righteous, then the most important thing is to have the correct views. Exactly. But and that's, then it's also movement politics also, too, where things aren't defined in terms of actual elections or bureaucracy or administration or even legislation, it's in terms of how does the movement advance. Right. do you think that there's that's something the, to that? Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. I'm Duncan Minch, and today I'm speaking with Joshua Mitchell, professor of political theory at Georgetown University.
2: I'm Paul Carisse, director of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. We launched Keeping It Civil because we believe in the power of intellectual dialogue to both renew our civic life and remind us of the value of liberal arts learning. At the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, we are restoring space for civil discourse across divergent views on human, civic, and academic issues. Our majors and minors undertake a liberal education to discuss moral and political thought, economic thought, and America's ideals and constitutional principles. They study important historical moments in leaders, and they experience leadership challenges through special seminars, internships, and programs. This broad foundation prepares them to be ethical, adaptive leaders in their chosen professions or civil society or in public affairs. We hope you'll learn more about the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University by visiting SCETL.ASU.edu. The School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University, a new class of leaders.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Keeping It Civil. Before we return to the content, if you're enjoying the podcast, pretty please with sugar on top. Tell your friends about it and give us a review on whatever platform you use. It feels a little weird to plead for your approval. Maybe this is why I don't do social media. At any rate, let's continue the conversation with Joshua Mitchell.
0: So movement, politics, activism, this is the political understanding of selfie man. And you ask the question, so how do we move beyond Uh this invention, this idea that gets invented because we're these disembodied individuals, a kind of imagined sense of who I am, right? The only way to get beyond this is to move from activism to citizenship. And citizenship is embodied local in real time And it's not just episodic. You don't go out and do something, and then you come back and you feel self-satisfied. It's the long labor of building a world together. And I'll repeat what I said earlier. Tocqueville says, as soon as matters are treated in common, we come to see that we need the neighbor's help, and he's not as different as we thought. So the only way to pull Selfie Man out of this righteous position— that is held is to get involved in face-to-face mediational relations. We're back to the problem of binodal man and the only antidote being this face-to-face association. And the thing is, once we do it can't that... can't be done
1: digitally. cannot. No. It cannot can't. be done
0: digitally. So let's talk about Facebook, for example, and social media. There's a long story here. We could talk about the Tahrir Square uprising, and maybe we'll get to that. But let's start with Facebook. Facebook friends, it's an interesting term. A friendship is not digital. Friendship is analog. Friendship is something that takes a long time to understand and we can't name it even when we do understand it. It's the old saying, we know more than we can say. But what Facebook does is it, it becomes a supplement to the real experience of friendship. And my argument is that one of the reasons why we have the advent of selfie man is, is it a
1: because, supplement or is it a replacement? Well, that's where sure. I'm going. That's okay. where I'm going. So
0: I'm using an ancient distinction that both Plato and Rousseau make between supplements and substitutes. And so what both Plato and Rousseau see, and and Marx in a funny way in the 1844 manuscripts with respect to money, what they all see is that the healthy relationship is one where you come to understand friendship, being a musician, courage. It's really difficult to explain Hmm. those things when you are a musician. You know you are. Other people can see that you're a musician. But it's this indwelt knowledge that's invisible, largely. Hmm. It takes a lot of time to develop. Facebook is interesting because it's Facebook friends. And so what you can do is you leverage as a supplement the friendship. Mm -hmm. Rousseau's version of this is the ancient warrior had courage, the modern warrior has strength. With respect to weapons, the courageous warrior can put on a weapon and that can amplify his courage, right? Mm -hmm. But if you use the weapon as a supplement and lose sight of the courage, then you ultimately become a very bad soldier. In other words, Mm -hmm. a supplement can't be turned into a substitute. So with respect to Facebook, and by the way, this is also Amazon shopping, online shopping. This is another way supplements have been turned into substitutes. We're supposed to have the experience of shopping. We're supposed to develop connoisseurship to figure out what's necessary for the home. I mean, if you have that, then Amazon Prime is fantastic. But if you don't have it, mm. then how do you develop that connoisseurship? What do you mean
1: by connoisseurship? Connoisseurship I mean, because- is this
0: development of personal knowledge. This is out of Polanyi and Oakshot. Development of kind of personal knowledge that can't be rendered as a formula. It just takes time. Like a musician. Becoming a musician takes a long time. and you develop- But don't
1: you think that the counter-argument can be made, possibly even on Facebook level too, but the Amazon shopping experience... You can do quite a bit of research. You are actually more empowered because you can read so many descriptions of how things and if you work know, and, if and, you and reviews. Know, but this if you
0: know the meaning of those things, then you can take advantage of the descriptions. There's a problem here is what I call the Best Buy problem. So we're not sure of a product that we're going to buy on Amazon. So we go to Best Buy and we try it out. We touch it, which is mm-hmm. what all shopping really comes down to. Mm-hmm. And then once we have this experience, then we go out and we buy it on Amazon. Ultimately, all knowledge is local, let's put it that way, or all knowledge is embodied. And we can extend it, but it ultimately has to come back to this. Uh, my argument is the great problem of our age is substitutism. We've turned supplements into substitutes, and that's a variant of this question. But you've asked the question, so what about Facebook, and doesn't that provide what's necessary? And my argument is there, too, you have this illusion of infinite reach, infinite friendships, But in point of fact, you form the knowledge which then can be amplified outward only in embodied communities. And Tocqueville saw this. We have to develop this invisible wellspring of practical experience, which Mm -hmm. can't be rendered as a mere formula. It can be extended outward, but you can't forget where the real motherlode is, which is in local face-to-face associations in embodied life.
1: Well, it strikes me in this that our total obsession with national politics, because our voting turnout rates for municipal elections are just abysmal. And even for just non presidential years, even midterms like now are not that good. We have more elections in this country than probably any other country in the world. I would be shocked if there was anyone who had as many elections as we okay. do. And you can, and Tocqueville wrote about this, it's one of the things that impressed him. And during the 1830s, when he's writing in the Jacksonian era, participation was high, but participation is not high right. anymore. And certainly our experience is becoming more digital, not less digital. And this is dramatically affecting the millennials and whatever's after the millennials, whatever they call that generation. Right. So technology and this becomes an incredible problem. Then also this specifically maybe a media issue, but I don't know if the media you can blame it on the media, this obsession of translating the political experience into a national experience rather than a local experience, rather than understanding that you need to run for your school board, right. that you need to run for your city council,
0: yes. or even to just understand what's... Let's consider this issue in light of the distinction between supplements and substitutes. So a good liberal, a Tocquevillian liberal will say that the lion's share of the work in human life has to occur in mediating institutions of society and that the state can supplement those institutions periodically but not become the substitute for them. So my argument is that this is actually what we're doing, whether it's at the state, whether it's with Amazon, whether it's with Facebook. I even see the opioid crisis in America because drugs are supplements being turned into substitutes, right? Mm -hmm. My argument is everywhere we look, we've got this problem of substitutism. And so it's not technically a technological problem. We're tempted by turning supplements into substitutes, and technology allows us to do that. So we're not going to solve the problem by banning the technology or getting new technology. The problem is in us which is to say we're tempted to turn supplements into substitutes. So I'm the not technology
1: a, is neutral. It's just a reflection of, our, if of a, the bifurcated.
0: I'm not going to say it's neutral. I'm going to say if there's a pathology in us, there's no technology that's going to make it worse. There's no technology that's going to make it better. We're not going to solve that problem. But let's follow this through. So the progressive era can be seen as turning the state as a supplement to the institutions of society into a substitute. But let's do this also with globalism. I'm not an anti-globalist. I want to avoid the binaries. I want to say that the nation is the unit and mm. transnational can supplement it. So let's have our treaties. Let's have the United Nations. The problem is not that it's a supplement. The problem is, and you see where I'm going, it's been turned into a substitute. Mm. That's the problem. And so when you set it up as binaries, then you get the cosmopolitan universals who they're onto something in that they're, we're called to do more than just pay attention to our nation. But the nationalists, they're onto something too, which is the place where we work through life is in our embodied communities up to the level of the nation. Because they're stuck in the binary, too. They're anti-cosmopolitan. I want to avoid entirely the language of pro and anti. I think it's utterly unhelpful anymore.
1: Yeah, this is the element of the Trumpian reaction that I think you find disturbing, is that you're just creating... So you see... Let me make sure I'm using your exact words, because this is actually something I wanted to get into, is this idea that the American experience has a, a liberal part of the experience, but it also has a covenantal, is the word you use... Part of the experience, and I think what you mean by that is this kind of religious or searching towards religious and righteous thinking that isn't necessarily explicitly religious always, and I think this helps explain a lot of the identity politics things that we already got into. But you see Trump and the Trumpian reaction as having its own covenantal, I think, nationalism is the term that you use.
0: Well, so I think in an essay that I wrote in American Affairs, which was set out, I suppose, unselfconsciously to be the Trump Journal, I pointed out that there are three pillars that I think we have to keep in mind for the future. One is the concern for the middle class. Two was the race issue in America, which I think is a huge one still. And third was a modest foreign policy with an understanding that America is both a liberal nation and a covenantal nation. And so this is, in a way, my answer to Rawls. Rawls wants to put everything in terms of this liberal public reason paradigm. But the history of America is we have these liberal aspects, to be sure. But in moments of great crisis, we always return to this covenantal language. There's a Republican tradition. I get all that. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying, in my view, what's the most important part about us is this liberal and covenantal, and it's episodic. And I'm not troubled by that. I'm not looking for philosophical coherency. You don't find it troubling? No, because I don't think human life admits of one source. I think there are multiple sources and the disadvantage of having multiple sources is that if you're looking to unify the whole thing, it becomes a coherent. The advantage of it is that at different times in a nation's history, you can draw on different parts of this. But so, you don't th-
1: find the covenantal part troubling. Well,
0: it can be troubling. And so this comes to the identity politics okay. thing, which I'll get to in a second. But go read Lincoln's speeches. I mean, these are profoundly covenantal speeches. There's an American So the
1: covenantal along. aspect of our culture can be a greatly positive thing and, and a greatly negative And thing.
0: I think in Martin Luther King's case, it's profoundly positive. And in
1: Lincoln's. And in Lincoln's, Lincoln's. case. And, so these and are, maybe even... In the revolution or yeah we have no king but king jesus i mean
0: sure. there's There's all that stuff in there. The problem, though, and now we come to identity politics, the covenantal tradition emerges out of Calvinism. and Calvinism, as I remind my students, central tropes are purity and stain in Calvinism. And one of the reasons I'm very interested in Reinhold Niebuhr was because Reinhold Niebuhr tried from 1930s to 1960s to try to bring back the mainline churches to this understanding of the stain of sin and concluded Mm. at the end that it didn't work. Then the question is, so what happened to the mainline churches? Well, if you read the Pew polls, more and more people are the nuns, they have no religious affiliation, and religion is dissipating in America. My argument is that's not what happened. Hmm. What happened was this, this covenantal category of purity and stain left the mainline churches, to be sure. It didn't disappear. It has entered the Democratic Party. and so. The- well,
1: but you could say it's entered into the American right, too, in its own way. Obviously, you have, to see, you have, you have to see. Well, I'm not necessarily saying currently, but I mean, in terms of Historically, well, although I think you could say currently also, but I mean, certainly you have to look at something like McCarthyism as, as yes. being, and, you know, or the original Red Scare in the, in the 1910s, which is something I study, so
0: yes. it's fresh on my mind. Fair enough, but I think what makes this version of it more pernicious is that whereas before you had both a theological and a political manifestation of it, now there's no theological understanding of this because theology has been stripped of the language of fault and transgression, churches about making Mm -hmm. especially the mainline churches, feeling good about yourself. And so the lion's share of fault and transgression has moved into the political realm, and this is what makes it so pernicious because in the religious realm you have the possibility of atonement, repentance, and forgiveness— But in the political realm, when it's stripped of those terms and those possibilities, you have only permanent stain, right?
1: Permanently deplorable, Permanent. attached to identity, yes, awesome. exactly, and, and attached to a specific historical claim. Right, and here identity, I think we have to see its
0: deeper understanding. A lot of people want to say, "Well, I have this identity," and we use this as a marker for a kind. I have a Phoenician identity. My family's father's family's Lebanese, so I kind of joke about uh-huh. that. So my identity is this. My, so it's a distinction. Well, you could have of a claim kind.
1: to victimhood. Though.
0: Well, I could, and yes, I probably
1: could. I mean, in contemporary yes.
0: discourse. But I think that's one use of identity, but that's not the one that most of us are using. The other way of understanding identity is, is a moral vocabulary which specifies a relationship of fault and innocence. And you specify who you are, your identity, by virtue of your distance from the prime offender. And we know who that person is. He's the white Heterosexual, male, probably Christian. Mm-hmm. And so you establish your innocence by virtue of your distance from that. So identity is used in a double sense. And I think Mark Lilla doesn't understand. He, mm. he just wants to use it in the differentiation kind. So he's saying further identities, further fragmentation, no common. That's his argument.
1: Wait, wait. It? I just spoke to him, so I want to make so sure, sure I'm understanding your rendition of so
0: My understanding is that Lilla's position is that identity politics is fractional. It divides us, mm-hmm. so there's nothing in common. We just have our various siloed identities. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true, but I I don't think it goes far enough because I think the other. You don't think his of,
1: critique of no, identity politics no, because because goes what far he, enough,
0: but he misses his fault and transgression. That identity is not simply a marker of kinds. My identity is a is in addition in the hands of the democratic political machine, is a mechanism through which we specify fault and transgression. So here mm-hmm. are the innocents and here are the guilty ones. Mm-hmm. That's what happens with identity politics, and that's what makes it so pernicious. Because in the hands of a religious person, we can admit that slavery was a great moral failing. We can say that colonialism had all sorts of problems. We can say the First World War and World War II, they were terrible. But at least you can say, here's the way in which, to quote scripture, behold, the world can be made new, yes, through repentance for atonement and forgiveness. And in fact, the Christian structure of history starts with the fact of transgression and then says, behold, there's good news, which is forgiveness and atonement. So the only way you can endure history theologically for the Christian is to move back and forth between transgression, repentance, transgression, repentance. That's the way the world moves.
1: It strikes me though, you just to go back to this notion, because I heard you say something about this yesterday, and I think it's a pretty interesting and fascinating notion. It strikes me that identity politics, righteousness, or pseudo-righteousness or pseudo-religiosity, whatever we want to call it, relies at least on the surface on this kind of postmodernist Theory, But it really smuggles through the back door a lot of Christian notions, just as you were saying, this idea that truth is spoken through the innocent. And it's really just taken what is, I would say, a very American form and transposed it with a new narrative and with new innocence. Yeah. And you certainly see a lot of this in the concept of intersectionality, which you were just alluding to. So the more intersections you have of supposed victimhood or identities that are deemed to be worthy of more value through their historical harm that's been laid upon them, that these people then become, quote, more innocent. Yeah. And then, therefore, more likely to speak truth. But this is really There's nothing postmodern about this notion, really. It's just transposed Christianity. Yes,
0: so I'm writing an essay which is called The Third Great Awakening Without God and Without Forgiveness. So what we have are these categories of fault and transgression. And as you say, the, the, the central Christian insight, which is what drove Nietzsche crazy, was that the truth is revealed through the innocent sufferer. This is the Christian insight. Except that there's one innocent sufferer, and that's the Son of God. But in the hands of those who live in a broken Christian world, you don't get beyond Christianity. You just have fragments of it laying around. And so the fragment of that's laying around right now is the fragment of the innocent who must be heard. And so you may have been there when we were talking about this, this altercation in the Yale courtyard where you had this one, I don't know what minority the student was. but
1: I think she was an African-American woman. She she
0: looked at the man and said, listen to me, you're not listening to me. And the great insight of Christianity is that the one who is not listened to, the one who comes from the place that no good is supposed to come from, turns out to be the one, if we just paid attention, we would have seen the truth. So it's through the innocent victim that the truth is disclosed.
1: Well, it's also just the idea within that, too, that there's no awareness within the way she portrayed herself in the Yale episode that you're referring to, that someone could listen to you and not agree. So if you're really listening to somebody, then right. of course you understand the truth yeah. with the capital T on high that this right. person is speaking. I encountered something very similar in American Studies graduate courses where other students and maybe even faculty would even say things like, well, you just need to read critical race theory as if there's no way I could read it And then have a different opinion or come to a different conclusion. It was just so obvious that critical race theory had the truth, capital T, that I just needed to receive Mm -hmm. and then thus be born again, basically. I wasn't, because I hadn't been born again into that ideology, obviously.
0: Right. Yeah. And the difference between, well, so this draws on Christianity. It's, if you just can see the innocence of Christ then you can understand through the Holy Ghost the truth of his message. But the oddity of this is that the Christian claim would be that Christ is that, but that you and I are not Christs, that you and I, in fact, can never make the claim that we are innocent. We may have gone through hell, Mm -hmm. but the Christian claim is that all of us have to ask the question, how have I transgressed? So Augustine, City of God. And this is
1: the perversion, to a certain extent, strikes me of this, whatever we want to, I mean, I think we need a term. I'm sure you'll come up with one that's better than anything I've used so far. But this idea, this pseudo-social justice religiosity, that it doesn't have that inward pointing to say that we're all sinners, right. we're all transgress, right. we all make mistakes, who are you to point right. the finger? Instead, it, it strikes me it has this very dangerous message of, no, it's okay for certain people to point the finger, and other groups should always anticipate the finger being pointed at them and should accept that.
0: Right. In the world of time, there's a way to distinguish between the innocent and the guilty. The Christian theology never allows that. And so that's what we have. Come back to the categories of purity and stain. We've got, Mm -hmm. in time now, Certain groups that are pure by virtue of what they have endured, and certain groups who are stained, and there's nothing they can do. And my worry about this latter group is that when that happens, then and this is the all-right. Then eventually people say, Well, we don't care. We don't care what we've done. And I see this happening in Europe right now. And I see this in the alt-right in America. And the reason why I'm so panicked about it is
1: I don't want... And that's wanna... the Trumpist version of this. Like the, well, there, there is people... there is a there is a pseudo religiosity that's going on in that community and the alt-right also. I I don't see it as religiosity,
0: I see it as Nietzschean because what Nietzsche said was see, Nietzsche hated this fault guilt thing, hated it.
1: So, you're rejecting my term of religiosity for all the, yeah, for the I social don't think, justice? You don't see it as pseudo no, religiosity? See, no,
0: I do see it as oh, okay. I'm saying okay. the all see, I think there's a confusion. I think to say, well, the all the right is practicing identity politics, that's not right. If you mean by identity politics, you know, the
1: all rights, I identi- did well, identity let me let me clarify. Okay.
0: So, if you mean by identity politics, a kind, right, mm-hmm. then okay, but I don't think that's what identity politics really means for us today. It means more than kinds. It means this moral relationship of fault and transgression. And so the left wants to look everywhere at moral fault and transgression in the world of time and find permanent, attribute permanent fault and stain and innocence to various peoples and adjudicate that politically. That's the project of the left. Make no mistake Mm -hmm. about it. So that's quasi-religious. And even
1: bureaucratically, isn't this part of the idea of certain programs for certain groups and et cetera? Yes. And even maybe certain disciplines.
0: Right. But I think the alt-right's different because, and you can only get this by reading Nietzsche. So Nietzsche said, Nietzsche saw this Christian thing. So Nietzsche... I'm not finally a Nietzschean, but he saw what was going to happen. Namely, that the religious architecture of Christianity would be repudiated, but not all of its trappings. So you'd end up with guilt and fault, but without the religious apparatus. He saw this coming, okay? And so he asks in the second essay of the genealogy, how does one get past guilt? Mm-hmm. He's thinking Christian guilt. And his answer is very simple. We have to forget. In other words, it has to be no longer a burden to us. Now that's an anti-religious answer. He's saying that in order to be free, finally... this Christian burden. We have Mm -hmm. to get past not only the religion, but the category of fault and transgression itself. And what I'm arguing, therefore, is Uh the alt-right is done with fault and transgression. They didn't want to hear about it anymore. They are in a post-Christian world. And that's the piece that frightens me, because my argument is the I Christian will say, yes, we have to give some accounting of slavery. There's something that has to be done here. I'm not sure it's reparations, but we have to understand there's something that's happened here that's terrible in this country, and we're still suffering from it. I think Europe has in some way to answer for colonialism, but not in the form that the left wants, because the left, and now I get to my But
1: their response point, is hysterical, though, right? I mean, it, the it left, might... It might The all rights we're just going to analyzing this. It's their response is hysterical, also, but it's in a different way. You don't see it as operating Uh, under. It's not. It's not a mirror image. Of the social justice left in your mind, it's substantially different, but still yes. hysterical. Well, I don't. Want or to am I use, getting you wrong? I don't want to use the word hysterical. I want to. Ask no, no, the that question. was my words. I know. Okay.
0: So I want to ask the question. You know, we're sticking with the claim that this is quasi-religious, and Nietzsche saw it as quasi-religious—the trappings of religion without the religion itself. His recommendation was to get beyond both the religion and the quasi-religious trappings of it to forget. In other words, to give up on guilt entirely. And I'm saying the alt-right is taking that course. So Which Europe, has its own
1: real danger. Yeah,
0: tremendous dangers, yeah, because yeah, yeah. Then, then there's no moral accounting for the past. And I do think we have to have a moral accounting in the past, but not one in which we forever bear the burden of that weight. God did not put us in the world simply to feel guilty. We're going to make transgressions, right. and there has to be atonement, repentance, and forgiveness. That's the only way the world is made new. The alt-right wants to say, we're not even going to talk that religious language of guilt. We don't care about what happened in World War II, for example. We don't care. I think that's incredibly dangerous. But it's a response to the quasi-religious language. It's saying, we're done with guilt altogether. And that's actually what Nietzsche wanted. And my argument is that Nietzsche got the diagnosis right, namely, you've got the categories still of Christianity without the architecture, and he wants to reject both of them, which is what the alt-right is doing. And my argument is, no, you've got to put them back together. And that's the only way forward. Hmm. That's the only way forward. That's the answer to the alt-right and the answer to the social justice left.
1: But you can understand, so there's an argument that I think Bloom makes this. I feel like Bloom describes a lot of the postmodernists viewpoint, which ends up becoming identity politics, solidifying after he dies. I mean, it's in birth as he's writing, but it doesn't take its full form then. He makes this argument that It's through Foucault trying to claim or understand Nietzsche and this sort of neo-Nietzschean thinking that they arrive at what they think is this post-moral landscape, which, of course, you're describing how this gets perverted and misunderstood quite quickly. But you can understand the appeal of Nietzsche, especially for intellectuals. But one of the things I think is interesting, going back to Tocqueville, is that I don't feel is really expressed in the liberal globalist elite classes, which dominate most of the intellectual class. I think you would probably agree with that statement. I don't see a lot of awareness. The the argument that Nietzsche was making about overcoming the old Christian order still had a a great deal of appreciation for many of its positive aspects, Nietzsche, Nietzsche, the foundation of it. So there isn't much of that appreciation of Nietzsche. But there also isn't much of an appreciation that Nietzsche was only arguing that the ubermensch, right, those who were truly unique, we might even just say an aristocracy, for lack of a better word, Mm -hmm. that only those people were really the ones who should explore such a moral framework, that this wasn't something to bring to the masses. And I think, and please... Again, challenge me if you think I'm portraying it incorrectly, that Nietzsche would be horrified at the idea of bringing such a way of thinking to everyone, to the demos, to the masses. And it's maybe because there's this lack of recognition of those aspects of Nietzscheanism that maybe we're also seeing this strange pseudo-religious covenantal mind frame that wants to simplify our experience and declare Certain groups morally unforgivable. Yeah. But but at the same time, you know, other groups always in the right, no matter what. It it makes sense to me that this misunderstanding ends up here. So,
0: Bloom at one point hinted that he thought that there was a great deal in Nietzsche that's worthwhile studying, but the problem is the bastardized version of it has become incredibly dangerous. So, I'll, I'll give you a variant of that. So, I think Nietzsche did want us to move beyond a metaphysics an absolutist metaphysics, beyond good and evil. Mm -hmm. And he gives us the language of values in the first essay of genealogy and other places, but really worked out there as a replacement for the moral certainty that Christianity and Judaism gave. Hmm. And so he is very clear that Western Europe is going to be stuck if it's still clinging to a Christianity which once built a civilization. And he has immense respect for it. I want to defend Nietzsche, but I think I need to explain him. He wasn't concerned with the truth of statements. He was concerned with the vitality of statements. Mm. And his argument is that Christianity brought vitality because mm. by the will being turned back in upon itself, it made man deeper and made him reflect
2: mm.
1: and
0: produced a will to truth, which in his estimation, let me keep going, which find mm. that this will to truth finally ends, and this is in the first essay of the genealogy, in the unconditional demand for honesty with respect to the question of God so that the will to truth that Christianity inaugurates ends with its overcoming in the form of the question, how can I, in all honesty, believe in God? So he does believe man Mm -hmm. becomes deeper with Christianity. Make no mistake about it. But now he thinks because Europe thinks that it's escaped Christianity, but hasn't, it's therefore stuck and can't renew itself and life has to be made new and that the model of the overman is the overcoming man who overcomes mm-hmm. and what has to be overcome is this entire constellation not just we don't go to church anymore but all the artifacts of christianity as well mm-hmm. the equality toleration all that sort of stuff he thought europe had come to a dead halt because it retained the categories, but didn't go beyond the categories entirely. And so his invocation of the term values was to alert all those who would use the term that there isn't anything absolute. It's just you have your values and I have mine, so to speak. This is not relativism in the strictest sense, because he believed in that we had to affirm values hmm. and that invariably when we did this and realized that there wasn't a metaphysical truth out there, mm-hmm. then we would discover what we always should have known and what the pre-Socratic Greeks knew, namely it was all the will to power anyway. Mm-hmm. And so you end up with the language of values, neutralizing this master metaphysics that produces the equality that Christianity wants and returns us to the aristocratic condition mm-hmm. of the pathos of distance between the classes. Now, what's curious about the left is it invokes this language of values mm-hmm. to relativize and to undo Christian claims, right? You mm-hmm. talk about God, and no, all no, it's just you have your values i have my values but it does so with the view to bringing about the equality that nietzsche thought was itself an artifact of christianity that's the paradox
2: (laughs) so it invokes
0: the term values to bring about exactly what nietzsche tried to overcome through his invocation
1: of the term values Mm -hmm. that's kind of liberalizing pseudo egalitarianism so it's why i say the left is halfway That, that is so bizarre i mean when you really start to bring it what a circuitous path that is
0: Yeah. Right. So they're still Christian and they hate Christianity. And they need to do both because if you go to Christianity, then the claim about permanent fault and transgression is seen as the disaster that it is. Right. So they're stuck. They're really stuck. As I said before, what concerns me is this. I don't want to say it invites the alt-right. There's always these people who say, we don't care what we've done. There's always mm -hmm. people who have done horrible things and say, well, who cares? It's a permanent Mm -hmm. danger in human life. And here, I think Christianity, and deeply Augustinian view of mine, you always have to ask the question, even if you think you're innocent, what have I done here? Mm-hmm. And the whole of Western tradition is based on this reflective concern. That's why we're concerned with corruption. In other parts of the globe, they just call it patronage. What's mm-hmm. wrong with this? No, no, you've got to be pure, right? Mm-hmm. This is a profoundly Christian idea, and I don't want to give it up. And my view
1: is the left well, is yeah, attacking and we, and we, this. And we project it onto our democratic experience. You know, I mean, most people are shocked that the old ethnic machines... Of the late 19th century in America, you know, immigrant political machines right. had the highest participation rates. People participated, people voted. Yeah. And you can't say that, I mean, to think of that as being corrupt, obviously there were corruptions. There's no point in trying to argue against that. But obviously people felt like they were making a difference. Right. People don't go and vote if they don't. I mean, unless... There's some system like in Belgium or Australia where it's where you get fined, which obviously we didn't have here. Right. But I mean, our concept of purity in our experience is very strange in America, okay. I wanna say.
0: Let me put it to you this way. So I didn't realize this until I taught Augustine in the Middle East. And there's a chapter, I think it's in book one, section 21 to 24. And it's the suicide of Lucretia. Mm-hmm. And the suicide of Lucretia is that account, which is reverberated through history, of this woman who is violated by the invaders. And in order to save face, because she's living in a pagan honor culture, she takes her life. And Augustine asks the question should she have taken her life? Now, Augustine is setting up the distinction between a fault culture and an honor culture. Mm. And an honor culture is a face-saving culture. It's outward-looking, and a fault culture is inward-looking. And reflections on sin is basically being part of a fault culture. And so this Augustinian view of Christianity, in my view, points toward the liberal project in that it's a fault culture. It's asking the question, not outwardly, what should I be doing, but how do I save face, but am I culpable? And Nietzsche's quite right on this. That's what produces the individual, the never-ending question Mm. Am I culpable? If it's honor culture, you're part of some larger, you are actually the relationship between Mm. you and the others. But it's this fault culture that produces individuality. This is right out of Nietzsche, this is not me. Mm. So this liberal idea of the self emerges out of a fault culture. And if you take that apart, it's not clear to me what you end up with. I think what happens is you return to the honor cultures of paganism. I think that's where we're going to go. And so
1: return to patrons that were, in a way... And kind of neo-paganism, but not labeled yes. as such. Right, right. But isn't there something very strange? I mean, I, going back to this neo-paganism with strange flavors of Christianity mixed in, but not acknowledged as such, it's not as if this is... Something a lot of these social movements or political movements are aware of and conscious of. And that's what I think strikes me as the greatest danger to it is it's a lack of awareness of its roots right. and the oddity of this thing being quite American and or at minimum Western. But I would make the argument specifically right. American and its origins. I don't know how you feel about that, but also ostensibly condemning almost everything about America, which is a very weird and strange way of conceptualizing oneself to hate this thing that you really are, but you don't know that you are right. is a fairly common phenomenon, I guess, but how is this going to play itself out? I think is just maybe distressing.
0: Well, we're, in a way, we're late in the conversation to bring it up, but let me do this. So the way I've so far characterized the distinction between globalism and identity politics, the, rather the co between globalism and identity politics, is that they're each nodal points of this democratic experience in which there's no risk. But I think you're pressing in a deeper direction, and I think we have to ask the question, so with respect to the language of fault and guilt, how are identity politics and globalism correlated? And I don't think I would have seen this until I went to Europe, where I've met all sorts of patriotic Citizens of different countries who are saying, every time I try to defend my country, the people on the left say, Aren't you ashamed of your country? Aren't you ashamed of your country? Aren't you ashamed of your country? And so it suddenly became clear. Identity politics condemns, it is insistent upon the eternal faults that you and your nation have perpetrated. And you can never find uh, relief from that because there is no theological way out. So, what is the way out? You give up on your nation and you embrace globalism, you deny your inheritance. Mm which is inscribed with fault right back to the beginning, and you choose instead globalism. So,
1: But isn't it also that you deny a part of yourself Isn't that part of what we're arguing to a certain extent?
0: So, Christianly speaking, you can't ever escape the partial brokenness of your inheritance. But the Mm -hmm. theological hope, except through redemption, right? Mm -hmm. So, Adam is transgression and Christ is redemption. And my argument is that that's what you get with identity politics, that identity politics points out the flaw of Adam and the Redemptor is not Christ, but rather globalism. So all of our inheritance, which is stained and tainted, can be redeemed, it's profoundly theological, by repudiating the sight of our inheritance but the site of our inheritance is understood to be the nation so globalism and identity politics go together in the sense that identity condemns and globalism redeems it's a profoundly theological formative that once took the form of and the
1: state as also takes the, the place state, of, of globalism in the sense like the state the state is the redeemer no this no, no it's beyond
0: the state because now I mean think about the debates about slavery in our own country you look at the history of America it's tainted. There's nothing redeemable about it. That's why we have to repudiate the nation entirely. Mm-hmm. So the grand hope is that there can be a redemption from fault, but it doesn't take any political manifestation, or rather it doesn't take the formula of the nation, which is the site of all the transgressions, mm-hmm. but rather a transnational unity. So it's something higher, in quotes, but it's not theologically higher, because Christianly speaking, the stain of inheritance in Adam, the stain of fault, can only be redeemed through God the Son. So you have this formula of transgression and redemption, except now it's the nation is the site of all the transgressions, Perpetrated through these identity groups, these which white be, people,
1: re, which will only be redeemed through this through, total globalism. Exactly, but of course, total the globalism is not possible
0: because we're creatures of inheritance. Mm-hmm. Because the global is the place where there's no inheritance, where you mm-hmm. can start clean. Where behold, I make the world new. Mm-hmm. That's the dream of the left. But your point, I think, is quite right. Which is mm-hmm. to be a human being is always to be in these embodied, broken communities. Which is why, I come back to the Christian formula. There's no way we're going to get past fault and transgression unless we can re understand the importance of atonement, repentance, and forgiveness. And if not, then the only way out of the permanent stain is the renunciation of the nation, the nation in globalism. globalism. It
1: strikes me that this is part and parcel of the liberal project to a certain extent, that people don't want to recognize the limitedness of their identities or of their experiences or of their communities, that the way the culture has moved, that in and of itself is inherently aligned with provincialism. And to construct, and I don't know if I want to use the word ideology, but a culture, maybe an ideology that figures out a way to explain to people that that's not the case, is perhaps...
0: I think the greatest challenge. Yeah. And I think Tokyo's view is twofold. On the one hand, when people are provided with this infinite freedom, they sooner or later discover that it's very, very thin girl. That's the first thing. But the other thing he says on occasion is what you always have to do is throw people into the daily details of life because then this universalist disembodied frame of mind no longer works for them. Their wings of the imagination are clipped and they're thrown into the daily details of life. That's why he defended federalism. I mean, finally, he defends federalism because he sees exactly the problem you're talking about, Mm. which is the disembodied self that hovers over the world. And so there's a kind of institutional set of mechanisms in place that can literally form us, form our character in certain ways, form our self-understandings. And so when you get rid of federalism in the name of it being inefficient, which is exactly what the statists want to always say, you say, well, it might be economically inefficient, but it's absolutely necessary if you can form a citizenry that understands that human life is always embodied and limited.
1: Well, thank you so much for all the time that you spent here. Funny thing is I didn't even get to more than half of the things I actually intended to talk about. So maybe we'll have to do this again. It's fascinating. It's going to be really interesting to see how the rest of Trump's term and everything, all all of this plays out. And I'm sure you'll have insights. So I really hope that you'll join us again. My pleasure. I certainly will. You've been listening to Keeping It Civil, a production of the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University. If you'd like to learn more about our classes or events or the requirements for a major or minor at the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, go to scetl.asu.edu to learn more. This podcast was produced by Duncan Minch with audio production assistance from Central Sound at Arizona PBS. Thanks for listening.